start to look at the Chronicles, we want to keep in mind who they're written to and the purpose behind it. Remember, you got a, a group of guys entering into the um, Promised Land after the exile. So you remember, we worked our way through the Old Testament and we came to uh, uh, the period of time when the kings failed and the country was conquered and they went into captivity. Northern Kingdom to Assyria and then later on the Southern Kingdom into Babylon. When we look at First and Second Chronicles, we're, we're covering a history again. But as we cover that history, the point of that history is to encourage the exiles who are coming back out of Babylon. Now, I want to paint the picture for you so we don't lose sight of it. When the exiles come back, they're coming to obliterated land. No homes. Everything's mowed over. That's part one. Part two, there are enemies all around them that want to destroy them. So while they start to begin to build, or they try to put things together, they try to build a house, or build a wall, or build something around the city, as soon as they do it, the enemies come. When we read Ezra and Nehemiah, what we'll discover is they are building with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, right? This is the attitude with which the exiles have come back. Now, Ezra, writing to those exiles, he wants two things. He wants to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes that they already made that sent them into captivity in the first place, right? God, basically, you can break everything that happens on the page of Scripture down to pretty simple rules. God lays out His uh, primary concept for us in Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema. The Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. So He wants he wants this attitude that is utterly, totally, completely given over to Him. Now, when we read the Old Testament prophets, what's the big, what's the number one problem? There's lots of issues, good kings, bad kings, things they did wrong, but what's the number one issue? The number one issue is they turned their heart away from God and they began to serve other gods. If you're serving other gods, is God your primary love? Is He primary in your life at all? No. So if He's not primary, He's not in that place of primacy, then we are not meeting that one requirement that God has. When we read through the Bible, folks, 619 commandments, at least, some would say more, that are, are things that the Lord is looking for out of us. Ways to live, how we should walk, uh, behavior that we should have. Those are laid out for us. But the only one that you have to concern yourself is the one that Jesus told us about. Do you know the one Jesus said? Jesus said all the law and the prophets can be simplified down to this point. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? God's primary law, His concept, what He's looking for from us. We don't have to make it complicated. We make it complicated, though, sometimes, but that's what God's laying out. And so that's the mistake that they made. So when Ezra begins to try to encourage them from their history, of course he's going to focus on the guy that we're looking at tonight, right? David? Why? What was special about David? He's a man after God's own heart. He understood the primacy of God. Was he perfect? No, of course he wasn't perfect. Neither is anybody else. But he understood the concept, right? Keep God first. Now, is that an important thing to understand as you're rebuilding a nation? Think about the establishing of the United States of America, right? Today, we find ourselves 
September 11th. Anybody go through the day and forget what the day was all about? Everybody remember? (laughs) So when we consider, when we think about what's going on and where we're at today and the the events that took place, uh, what is it, 12 years ago now, which is hard to believe, by the way, for me. What... To me, it is. it gets easier the more time passes. The day will come when people won't remember it. For example, there are some people here who will not remember or, or, or who will always remember December 7th, right? December 7th? There's another thing that happened that day, right? But there's also a whole part of the population, December 7th goes by and everybody's like, what was that? The same way that we start to lose sight of those memorials in our life, those things we want to remember, the same way we forget our roots, where we come from. The United States of America was founded on Christian principles. That doesn't mean everybody who was in government back when the the country was founded was a believer. Please don't believe that. Everybody you want to think, but it was absolutely founded on Christian beliefs. The problem is, I find it... uh, incredibly hilarious that the Supreme Court ordered that the Ten Commandments could not be in that courthouse several months back. Maybe it's been a year or two back now. Two two years? They, man, see how time flies? So they said you can have the Ten Commandments. So here, I just want you to picture it. The justices come out and they sit down on their benches and they announce to these people it is not constitutional that the Ten Commandments are displayed in your courthouse. While the Ten Commandments are engraved in the wall behind them all the way around the building. Do you guys understand the humor in that? So we can lose our, 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 our what would we call it? Like our foundation, the foundational principles upon which we're founded. So in school we teach history, but but see we make the mistake we change it, right? We we don't want to tell the same stories the same way because uh, eventually that looks bad, makes somebody else look bad or something. So we'll we'll doctor history up, and pretty soon history is not teaching us anything. But here Ezra is saying, look, I'm going to lay out the history for you with specific points in mind for you to understand the importance of the foundation of this nation as we rebuild this nation under God. That was Ezra's focus, Nehemiah's focus. That Israel would be founded on the Lord, that they would follow the Lord, that they wouldn't make the mistakes that brought them into captivity. Are you guys with me? So as we look, that's the, that's the area, that's the direction from which Ezra comes. And we find ourselves looking at, at the life of David, and we're looking specifically tonight at a, at a, a couple of battles that David fights. We're going to take a look at, uh, we're going to pick it up. In, uh, in chapter 20, in chapter 20 verse 1 is, is where we'll be. And we're going to take a look at some battles and, uh, that David fights and that you and I fight. All the time. Jesus, remember when he spoke of the Old Testament, Old Testament is some of my favorite stuff. Why? Because it is, it is so easy just to avoid. Ah, it's just a bunch of silly names and this and that and it really has nothing. But when Jesus talked about that Bible that people were reading, He said, you search these Scriptures daily. You realize the New Testament wasn't written yet when He said that. When Jesus said, you search the Scriptures daily, for in them you think they, they give you life. He wasn't talking about the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wasn't there. What He was talking about 
was the Old Testament. And he said, it is these that speak of me. They talk of me. So I, when I look through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we started way back in Genesis, remember? Here we find ourselves all the way to First Chronicles. I mean, not very long and we'll say we've finished the whole Old Testament. And as we worked our way through, our goal is not only to see the reality of what's happening at the time these things are written, but to see Christ in the pages. What does this have to do? How does this apply to me? What do I do with this information? So we, like Ezra, writing to the children of Israel, we're looking for application too, right? Just like the children of Israel were. What well, says in uh, chapter 20, verse 1, a familiar verse for some of us. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Now, we remember what happened during this verse? The, the writer of Chronicles, Ezra, is not going to talk about it. His focus in this is to encourage the people to follow. Everybody knew this story that he skips. What story did he just skip? Bathsheba, right? In the time of the year when the kings went out to battle, David took time off. And when David took time off, he happens to go wandering outside. He climbs up in the, in the top of his palace. He looks over all of his kingdom and the houses. The richer, the wealthier you were, the closer to the palace you would live. Right? You guys get the picture? The palace was basically the stronghold. And the closer to the palace you were, the more prestige and power you had. Now, some of David's mighty men had homes right around the palace. One of David's mighty men, his name was Uzziah. So we, we, we know as we, as we take a look at, at, at the things, he had a, a wife, Bathsheba, who was left behind. He's away in battle. And he comes out and he sees her taking a bath on the roof. And we know the rest of the story, right? He saw her. He wanted her. He killed her husband for her. He did all kinds of things. Got off track. He got off track. Everybody knew that story. What the chronicler is laying out for us, as he puts this all together for us, his focus is in a different place. You see, if we pull, if we pulled ourselves and we said, what was David's greatest sin? A lot of us would say Bathsheba, right? Hopefully after tonight, not all of us, but a lot of us would say Bathsheba. Chronicler's focus is somewhere else. And we'll see that as we continue to watch. But everybody knew this story. Everybody had heard it. His focus, though, is what happened with the guys who were in the battle, who were fighting the fight. It said, Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold. So what happens is, in that little sentence where it says, David stayed back, Joab goes and defeats the enemy, and he conquers the city. Now, I want you guys to understand how cities were built. Not only Greek, Middle Eastern cities were all built around an Acropolis. They didn't always call it the Acropolis. Sometimes they called it high places. You guys heard that term before, right? So the Acropolis is where your temples would be, your places of worship. 
Your places of worship were not only the Acropolis, not only uh, up on top of that hill was your place of worship, but that place of worship also served as your bank. That was the bank of the city. That's where you stored your money, where you might make investment, where you would keep things in the bank that were precious to you. The last place to fall in any city was the Acropolis. That was the place everybody wanted to conquer. Why did they want to conquer that? That's where all the gold is. Was it any different in Jerusalem? Not really. You come up Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill. You got the city here on this plateau. What was on the top of the plateau of Jerusalem? What was it? The temple. And where was all the value for the children of Israel kept? At the temple, right? So we see the same thing. Now here they're fighting Ammon. We talked about that last time. Same battles being finished up. Joab conquered him. Now he got into the city and all that's left is to conquer the Acropolis. Second Samuel tells us that then he went back and got David. And he brought David out. David's a king. David, we're, gonna, we're about ready to conquer him. Why don't you come out and we'll do the last push with you here. So David comes out. It says that he took the crown off of the king's head. It weighed a talent of gold. You guys remember how much a talent weighs? Now, it's like a lot of things. When we try to discover ancient measurements and weights, there are some disagreement. Somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. Okay? Now, when it says he took the crown off the king's head, we picture, because we've seen movies, right? We see the king sitting on his throne. And, you know, with this monstrous 125 pound, 75 to 125 pound crown. Well, which of you wants to wear that heavy a hat? When I was in the Marine Corps, we ran around with our helmets on, right? Our Kevlar helmets. I hated that thing. Hated it. Any opportunity, first time somebody would tell us, okay, we're out on a hump, humping around somewhere, and... And somebody would say, okay, we're going to take five. What's the first thing that comes off? Helmet. All the time. All the time. I cannot stand that thing. But these guys were wearing a 75-pound hat. Made out of gold and precious stones. Let me give you two possibilities and some insight into how they did it. In those days, the king did not wear that crown. Most times, that crown was suspended over the throne on golden chains. So they would make it as ornate and crazy as possible so that it would show the glory and the power and the majesty of the kingdom. So, more than likely, it was not on a king's head. But there's another possibility. You see, remember I told you they were conquering the Acropolis. And the Acropolis was the place where all the gods they worshipped were at, right? And the people of Ammon, they worshipped a god... That's uh, name is spelled M L K. Well, I don't know if you guys realize this. Ancient Hebrew is only consonants. There's no vowels. So when we work through the ancient Hebrew, we have to figure by context and what's going on. What are what are we looking at here? More often than not, that word would be Malach, which is king. You took it from the king. But in Ammon, they had a god. And that god, his name was Molech. Molech. You remember the ones that the children of Israel had been worshipping, sacrificing their children? That was Molech. 
It's possible that this giant crown was sitting on the God's head. They would have had some type of a statue sitting there with this giant crown on them. Remember I told you. Remember David wanted to build the temple. Why? Because all the other nations, what did they have? Temples, right? Temples that were, that were, that were celebrating their gods. And their God's representative on earth was who? The king, right? So the king would have been Molech's representative on earth. So it could be that this is the crown that was on the God. It could be the crown that was suspended over the throne. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What matters is the people of Ammon are conquered and David takes the crown. I cannot imagine him walking around. I think one of the greatest... uh, uh, things that I that we 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 had a little while ago, um, Mormon Research Ministries was out here. You guys remember? And they were talking about the the golden plates. And I thought it was interesting to bring out a replica and say, here they are. You know, we read the stories about what took place with them. Here's the golden plates. Pick it up. Feel how much it weighs. Read the story again and see the things that were accomplished as a result of that. What do we have? We have an opportunity to really get an understanding, right? Concepts in our mind. 75 to 125 pound crown. Feel free when you go home to put two 45 pound plates on your head. And walk around. You want to know why kings were cranky in those days, huh? That would make me cranky. Anyways... It says, it says that there were precious stones in it. It was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So, symbolically, they lay it on his head. I promise you, they did not keep it there. They took it to the throne. They put it into the treasury. And that's where that crown is going to stay. It probably melted down and became a part of the temple as David is producing things for the temple. It also says in verse 3, And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work. With saws and iron picks and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now some of you, your Bible might say something different. Anybody got something different? Or does it all say the same thing? Put them to work. Anybody's Bible say cut them? Yeah. The I think it's the King James primarily goes with cut them. That's because that's what it says. It says cut them. He cut them with axes and he cut them with saws. In the Hebrew, the difference between cut them with them and put them to work with them is one letter. The assumption is by Bible translators that David didn't hack them all up with saws and axes, but rather he put them to work with saws and axes. We don't know. We know that in Samuel... It says, uh, if, I, if I remember right, here it says cut them, and Samuel it says put them. One it says one, the other it says the other. So between the two, there's discrepancy, right? One of those two isn't like the other. Coming to an understanding of which is, which is it? Is it cut them or is it put them? I don't know. I like to think that David put them to work and made them slaves. That kind of seems to fit with the concept of building the temple, bringing guys together. But this is the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are traditional enemies of God. But nowhere did God say obliterate and wipe them all out, right? So, I don't know. We'll see 
uh, when we get to heaven, that'll be one of the mysteries that we'll have absolutely solved. The point is, as we look at it, as we see it, I don't want you to get the idea, oh man, how many of these are in the Bible? Not very many. 99.5% pure is that book sitting on your lap. 0.5% means that there are 0.5% areas where we got questions. Whether he cut them or put them, does that change the doctrine of salvation? Who Jesus is? Any major issue in the church? It's a historical issue though, right? So maybe one day something will come to light. Maybe they'll find a, an older scroll. Something that will bring it all out so that we can understand completely. But for now, it's important that you understand there are some of those things uh, that we find in the Word. Now it goes on in verse 4. Now it happened afterward. War broke out in Gezer. Gezer is an ancient city of the Philistines, also known by the name Gob. Gob and or slash Gezer. Um, neither name is very good as far as I'm concerned, so I don't care about them. But they're Philistine areas. It says, it happened afterward, war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines. Now here's what I want you to get. The war with the Philistines, we look here in the next uh, 4 through 8. What we have is a concept that the Philistines are an unrelenting enemy. How long have they been the enemy of the children of Israel? Forever. Forever they've been fighting. Forever they've been battling, right? Do you have an unrelenting enemy? Is there an enemy that, that opposes you no matter what you're doing? Is there such a thing? So in the same way that there's an unrelenting enemy for the children of Israel, there's an unrelenting enemy for us. You can make that unrelenting enemy Satan himself, or you can make that unrelenting enemy your flesh. Either way... You're going to do battle against those two things every day of your life. The one thing that I want you guys to really take from chapter 20 is the problem, the reason David got into trouble is because he wanted to take a day off. The battle's over. Listen, please hear me. The battle is never over. Ever. You don't get a day off from your flesh. You don't get a day off where you don't have to think about what Satan, Satan comes to kill and destroy. What's he looking for when he's looking to kill and destroy? Is he looking for somebody who's on their guard, watching and waiting? Or is he looking for somebody who's decided to take the day off? Kind of just walking around in the grass by themselves, thinking, Ah, there's probably not any cheetahs out here. I'm just a little old gazelle, hopping around through (laughs) through the weeds. And all of a sudden, bam. The same way with Satan. How did David get tripped up? He was supposed to be in the battle. Right? When the battle happens, where's the king supposed to be? He don't have to be in the front line, but he should be there, don't you think? Did God say, David, don't go? Nope. says in the time of the year when kings went out to battle, David stayed home and he got picked off. That's the message. Now the next several battles that we see with the Philistines, all deal with the Rephaim. Do you guys know what the Rephaim is? Rephaim means giant. Literally, it means something like people from the land of Sheol. Sheol is the grave. I mean, if we wanted to make a crazy literal translation, you could almost say that uh, this is a Bible for zombie. You with me? Bible for zombie. 
Now, obviously, these are not people from the undead. What is it about them? Well, for example, you know one of their names. When David was a little boy, he fought him. What was his name? Goliath. He was a Rephaim. And there were Rephaim. In fact, there's a whole valley called the Valley of Rephaim, which is the Valley of the Giants. This was a place where the giants were. Our Bible translates that word giants. It translates the word Nephilim as giants. Nephilim and Rephaim do not mean giant. It's just the way for us to, to deal with the concept. Because all these guys are talked about as being of great stature. So we'll talk about them in terms. The giants. So we have this battle in Gezer. I want you to look at it. The battle in Gezer with the Philistines. At which time, Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Sipai, who was one of the sons, and it says, of the giant. Now, in some of your translation, it might say one of the sons of the giants, plural. That's a better translation because the word is Rephaim. I am the, 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 what do you call that? It's not a prefix, it's a suffix, right? Suffix. At the end of the word, the Iim is plural. That's why when we talk about the name of God, you know one of His names is Elohim. It's plural. Singular for God is the word El. Two or more is the word Elohim, which is one of the names of God. Interesting, but we won't spend too much time on there. The word all throughout this chapter, used of giants, is the word Rephaim. The Rephaim, the giants, fallen ones. These guys were tremendous warriors. They, they struck fear into people's hearts, so much so that Goliath standing before the whole army and challenging, hey, I'll take on anybody. And what did the whole army do? Now, I want you to understand the, how amazing that is. Anybody here ever spend time in the Army or Marine Corps or Navy or some kind of service? Listen, if you're standing with a bunch of your buddies and some dude steps out by himself and says, I'll take you on, I promise you I have never been in a company of men that would not go. Somebody would have went. Somebody would have went. In fact, in, in my unit... It would have been a guy from New Jersey. This guy from New Jersey hit me harder than I have ever been hit in my entire life. He hit me in the thickest part of my head, my forehead, and knocked me loopy for about two days. I hit him as hard as I could and separated my shoulder. And he just smiled at me. This is not a good day. I'm sure he would have responded. Now, here, what's the reason behind why I say this? The mindset of people in the military is not to be afraid and hide. People in the military, somebody in there is somebody who thinks he's the baddest guy on the planet. Are you with me? And you've got a whole army of guys like that, of Israel, following Saul, and this dude, whatever there was about Goliath, not only the fact that he was big, but whatever there was about him, every one of them would not go. Nobody would go. Don't put in your mind that Goliath is just, you know, Andre the Giant. Okay, Andre the Giant was a big fella, but uh, he's not going to strike me with so much fear that I, somebody's not going to go. Goliath, however, he was fearsome. 
And that's the idea behind the word Rephaim. You guys understand what I'm saying? So when we look at this word Rephaim, he's, this is one of the sons of the giants. But what are we seeing about this one is that uh, Simekai killed him. He killed him. Who's Simekai? He's just one of David's regular guys. This is not one of David's mighty men. This is one of David's regular guys. What do we see taking place here? What is the point of this story? That David conquered Goliath. That the story was everywhere. David following God and these people following David's example. And they go into battle and they discover that God can give them the victory. And they're defeating giants. All these stories that we look at the rest of this chapter are giants falling. Sons of Goliath. Brothers of Goliath. People who were part of the Rephaim. They're being obliterated by regular Joes. Remember, we told the story of Goliath and I said nobody would go because he was so fearsome. But what do we see now? We see that bravery, the the courage of David. Not because something was special about David, but because of David's faith in God was transmitted or translated to his people. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what we're seeing. People are starting to imitate David. Sibachai. He kills uh, Sipai, who was one of the sons of the giants, and they were subdued. Then verse 5, I want you to see why this is an unrelenting enemy. Another war. And again there was war with the Philistines. So that war was put down. Now there's another war. And Elchanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That's a big spear, right? Big. You guys get the point, right? Nobody has to see a weaver's beam to get the idea. Weaver's beam, big guy, big spear. Frightening, fearsome person. The brother of Goliath, right? So he looks fearsome like Goliath. But what a, Elkanan, who's Elkanan? He's just, he's just a regular Joe in the army of David who's following David as David follows God and God's given victory. They're seeing victory. They're seeing things established in their life. Even though the Philistines are an unrelenting enemy. No day off. War, 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 war. There's four of them in that section. Is there a day off that we can take from our... If you take a day off from battling against your flesh, the Bible says that your spirit is at constantly at war with your flesh. Is your flesh less fearsome than Goliath? Man, it don't take very long for our flesh to get off track, does it? Does it take very long for us to start caring more about our wants and desires than about what's good for the body of Christ? Doesn't take me very long. That I gotta stay in that battle every day. Every day. The Bible says mortify the flesh. You know what that means? Yeah. And gruesomely. Obliterate it. Demolish it. Destroy it. There's not really a, a harder word that we can take for that idea of mortify. Okay? So this guy gets killed. Alhanan kills Olamhi. Verse six. Yet again there was war at Gath. Now there's another war. Where there was a man of great stature, with twenty-four fingers and toes, six on each hand, six on each foot. He also was born to the, word is, Rephaim. The Rephaim. He's part of the Rephaim. 
That doesn't mean he wasn't Goliath's child. He may very well have been, because Goliath was part of the Rephaim. But I want you to understand, there's something fearsome about that word. Okay, not just a big dude. I've seen lots of big guys. You know the saying. What's the saying about big guys? The bigger they are, but it don't say they don't fall at all, does it? And I knew a lot of little guys who really liked to try to push that point. So the idea behind this word is something fearsome, something frightening, something that carries a little bit of terror more than just the size and the stature of the man. And this guy, there was definitely something about him, right? Because he had too many of these, right? He had one too many on each hand. One too many on each foot. You guys ever known somebody like that? I knew a guy who had who had uh, six. He didn't have them on all of them. I think he had six fingers on one hand. Not six fingers, but it would be five fingers and a thumb. He had an extra phalange growing out the side. He's, he's, he was kind of trippy. Kind of trippy. I, I won't lie. But he had those. So it talks about him in verse 6. Then, verse 7, So when he had defied Israel... Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. Now, two things I like about this story. Shimei had a son, and he named him Jonathan. That means to me, Shimei probably and David were close. What was David's best friend ever in the whole world's name? Jonathan. I don't believe in coincidence. I think he named his son Jonathan because of that. And I think it must have been pretty exciting for David to hear about Jonathan killing a giant. Killing one of the Rephaim. So he puts him down. Verse 8 says, These were born to the Rephaim in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So, in these stories, what's he saying? What is Ezra telling them? Hey, every day we got to fight giants. Every day, right? Every day. We, you put whatever face you want on your giant. Maybe your giant is unemployment. Maybe your giant is loneliness. Maybe your giant... But everybody faces them. Everybody faces them. Everybody has those battles. And we've got to stay engaged in the fight. God calls us, interestingly enough, when we consider things like this, the Rephaim, the giants, God calls us to something. Now, a lot of people think that we should march. Maybe we should. All I know is that the Bible says we should stand. Doesn't it? Flip over from here and we'll be right back to it. So hold your finger there. But flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. What is the challenge from Paul to us? Is it any different than what God was telling David? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. 6.10 Ephesians 6.10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, what? To stand. Right? To stand. We're supposed to make a stand. We're supposed to be able to stand. Standing against the wiles of the devil. How many days off there? How many days off the devil going to take? So we gotta, we got to be ready every day, moment by moment, 
to stand, right? Putting on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You want me to put that in Hebrew? Rephaim. Okay, maybe not picture perfect, but the idea is the same. We have a fearsome foe that we can't always see. And it's never flesh and blood. It's not the person, it's the power behind that person. It's the Spirit moving that person. Our enemies are not the people around us who may be marching on the other side of the road. Our enemies are principalities and powers and hosts, people of uh, uh, spirits of wickedness. And how do we stand against them? And the strength of the Lord and the power of His might. Right? And the strength of the Lord and the power of His might. So he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day. And having done all to stand, what's the next two words in verse 14? Stand therefore. How many times you got to say it? He said, that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He said that we would withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And then He said, stand, therefore. Does God want us to make a stand? Does He want us to be standing for something? The enemies all around us. But the enemy is not the homosexual people and their agenda. The enemy is not... President Obama and the the left-wingers, nor is the enemy the right-wingers. There is a real enemy we do battle with. And he doesn't wear flesh and blood. And so what does God tell us to do? Stand. 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 Not cower. Not retreat. Not turn around. He says... Stand. Stand in the face of opposition. Stand in the face of the giant. Stand before the battle that seems like there's no possible way that anybody can win this. But every victory of every battle on the face of the earth begins with someone making the choice to stand. I have to stand. The problem in chapter 20, in the beginning, David didn't stand. He didn't stand. Our mindset in America is a little different than most of the world. Most of the world doesn't live for retirement. There is no retirement in most of the world. You get that, right? You go to Aikido's Peru in the jungle and try to tell them I'm retired and see if they have a word for that. What does that mean? You're dead? What do you do when you're hungry? You still have to go climb up on top of that coconut tree and get the coconut out, right? You still got to go pick mangoes. You still got to do battle with the anaconda who's crawling across the road trying to eat you. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have built in this this mindset that somehow we're working ourselves to the point where we don't have to work anymore. And you won't find that in here. Our rest is in Christ, right? 
Our rest is in Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest, right? So your rest is Him. He's given us a job to do, didn't He? He said the master got away for a long time. And what did he call the evil servant? He said the evil servant is the one who says in his heart, Oh, he's not coming back anytime soon. And he began to party and drink and beat the other servants. You guys remember the story? Matthew 25, something like that. So, we have a job. What's the job? Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them the things Jesus commanded until he comes back. One job. One battle. Two enemies. No time off. No time off. Does that mean you can't take a day off of work? Knock yourself out. Take as many days off of work as you want. But no days off from Jesus. No days off from the Lord. No days off. No vacations from the Word of God. No vacations from serving Him. No vacations from giving your life to Him. Nothing. He gets it all. He gets it all. Look what it says in chapter 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel. Uh Uh-oh. And moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Remember I told you when we started, most people think David's greatest sin was with Bathsheba. I think David's greatest sin is in chapter 21. Satan wanted to destroy Israel, so the Bible tells in Samuel that God was upset. We don't know what God was upset about. There was some kind of sin in the camp of Israel that God was upset about. So he took the heads of protection down from around Israel and David. Satan wanted to destroy him, so Satan went. And he whispered in David's ear, count the people. That seems like a pretty small thing, right? What's the big deal? Count the people. Well, there were two reasons for them to count the people. One was so that the people would pay uh, a ransom to the Lord for their lives. The closest thing to relate it to for us would be like a tax. But it wasn't a yearly deal. It was just when God said. He had done it in Exodus uh, chapter 30. We see that. There was another time during numbers that the people were numbered so they could know how many people were in their army. All we know about this time is David was filled with pride and he wanted to know how big his army was. Why? Was it the number of his army that delivered him? Was it how many soldiers he had? Was it about how many men that he had lined up in his army that gave him victory? No. But that's the direction he's moving. He's lost sight in his pride of who gives the victory. God delivered Gideon with how many men? Do you guys remember? 300 men. 300. 30,000 showed up to fight. God sent, how many is that? 29,700 home. That's a lot. Is it about how many you have? No. So Satan lifts up David's heart in pride. David goes to number the people. Joab, his general, recognizing the problem, I want you to hear what Joab says. Because Joab is not often the voice of restraint. But at this time, in this story, Joab is like, David, what are you doing? Don't do this. 
May the Lord make His people a hundred times more than they are. But, my Lord the King, are they not all your servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should He be a cause of guilt in Israel? Joab is warning him. Now there's a couple of things I want you to see here that kind of have application to ministry, kind of have application to us. Who was the king? Is David doing something wrong? But did Joab do it anyway? Interesting point, isn't it? Oh, come on. God would never have us just follow His anointed if His anointed was going into error, would He? Are you sure about that? What about Saul? Saul a good king or bad king? Well, let's say after Saul blew it. Good king or bad king? That makes it simple, right? Bad king. What did David do? Everything Saul asked him, right? Was David anointed king? Sure. Why would he do everything Saul wanted him to do? Saul was God's anointed. So David said, if God wants me to have control, what will he do? He'll give it to me. Right? Is God sovereign or not? Does God require your ability to interject what's going on? So what we see in Joab, I like it because you got Joab. Joab does not like and David is dead wrong. But what's Joab do? He counts the people. Samuel already told us God was judging the nation. Is it possible for us to get in the way of something God's trying to do, even though we're trying to do the right thing at the wrong time? Is it possible to do the right thing at the wrong time? Sure it is. God has a way of doing things, doesn't He? What's the way that God does things? Is He able to raise up kings and bring them down? Is He able to do that? Is He able to do that in your life? Are there kings in your life that God raises up or takes down? Sure there are. Let the Lord do do what He does and you follow God with all your heart trying to please Him because you love Him. Right? That's what David did. And God brought it down. I like the fact that Joab obeys him. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came to Jerusalem. So Joab went and counted. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. That's a lot of guys. He had 470,000 from Judah who drew the sword. Wow, that's a lot of guys. But he did not count Levi. They would never count Levi. Levi was the priestly they didn't serve in the army. And it says he didn't count Benjamin. Benjamin was the smallest tribe. And so Joab skips it because he's a little irritated with David. He's irritated that he's doing this in the first place. The Bible says he skipped them for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Joab didn't like the fact that he had to do it. And it says in verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. God was displeased with Israel. He let the... Leash off of Satan. Satan pushed David. David fell in pride. And God brought judgment against Israel for their sin. Oh, by the way, does God need a reason to judge you? You sure? 
Yeah, no. We are all condemned men. You're guilty the day you were born. We are all utterly and completely born in sin. Period. You are a born sinner. God in His grace and mercy forestalls, withholds His judgment. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and compassion upon whom He will have compassion. Is that in the Word of God? Absolutely is. Is it true? Absolutely true. So, God is going to judge Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take the iniquity of your servant, for I have done... Take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David repents. What is the number one requirement for forgiveness? Repentance. What does repentance mean? We change our direction. That means I agree with God that what I did was wrong. Prior to this, David didn't think what he was doing was wrong. But now David says, I was wrong, forgive me. Okay? That's repentance. That's a requirement for forgiveness. Sometimes we forget that and we just say, Lord, forgive me because I did this. And we forget that a requirement of forgiveness is repentance. Repentance means I was wrong and you were right. Forgive me. Take away the iniquity of your servant. So the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. This is David's prophet. Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose from one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself three years of famine, or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So David chooses. I sinned, he said. I sinned. Look, we don't ever sin in a vacuum. Your sin affects the entire body of Christ. Do you know that? It's not just you. It affects it all. How much more when a pastor falls? How many of those have we seen? You guys lived through any of those? How many people does that affect? Just him? What happens if a president falls? The entire nation. Or a king? The entire nation. They all are apart. So God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is deserved. God is righteous and just and has every right to judge. David, I think, chooses the amazing thing here. He says, I have sinned, I am guilty, and I put myself in your hands. I don't want to be in man's hands. I don't want to be in somebody else's hands. I want to be in God's hands. I love that about David. I want to be in God's hands. God, I want to be in your hands. Listen, verse 14, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. What's it say? 70,000 men died. And you think Bathsheba was the big deal? 70,000 men died as a result of David's pride. I want you to think about that. Let that set in. 
Because we really think pride's not a bad thing, right? Gotta, you gotta have pride. Have pride in your work. Have pride in yourself. That's in opposition to what God's Word says, isn't it? God's Word oftentimes has, gosh, how would we say it? Substantially different view of things than we might have. Substantially different view that that we might take in, a, in regard to a situation. God's Word has got some incredibly amazing uh, things to lay out for us. God's Word has a lot of challenges. A lot of concepts that maybe are, are I don't know, a, a struggle for us to kind of grasp and, and get our hands around the concepts of what God's Word is laying out for us. But you know that there are six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination. We heard that word abomination before, right? A lot of times we throw that word around at a variety of things. But I promise you, we don't throw it around at the things that are listed in that list that God gives us. In Proverbs, He lays it out for us. <clears throat> he lays out the 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 six things that the Lord hates. You know what the first one is? Proud look. Do you know what the second one is? A lying tongue. Third, hands that shed innocent blood. Fourth, a heart plans evil five feet that rush to do evil six a false witness who speaks a lie seven a man who sows discord among brethren you know that those are never on the church's list of abominations they should be I want you to notice in that seven things gossip made the list lying made the list you know those things you say, oh come on a little lie God hates it does the word get stronger is there a stronger word we could use than hate probably not right God hates it God hates it I don't know what the issue was the Bible doesn't tell us what the issue was that was going on in Israel that had the Lord in a position where He needed to bring judgment. But He used the pride of David to do it. To bring His judgment in 70,000 fell. Now listen. More people in the church are destroyed by gossip than any other thing. More lives will turn away from faith in Christ as a result of gossip than anything else. And we got to stop doing it. We got to stop discord, right? I got no business talking bad about a church down the street at all. That's my brother. That's my brother. 
We're in this thing together. Yeah? So, I want to try to encourage and help. And if I have a problem with my brother, does the Bible tell me what to do? What does it say? I go to him face to face. I don't go to somebody else. I go to him. And we sit down and work it out. And that's the way that's best. It's kept between two people. The problem is solved. And it never goes anywhere else. So while we're looking at this sin that killed 70,000 men, I think when we get to heaven and find out how many thousands upon thousands were destroyed because of gossip, a man that sows discord among brethren, or because of a lying tongue or a proud look, or hands or feet that were quick to, to, to uh, run to evil, is there a better description of our nation? Look at it. A proud look? Oh, that'd be us. A lying tongue? Absolutely. I turn on the news, I can hear a liar every two seconds. Can I? <laughs> oh, if there's a politician on the TV, there's lies. What about uh, hands quick to shed innocent blood? How many thousands of babies aborted a day? How many? Does it get more innocent than that? I mean, I know we're all born in sin, but... It, but God held the nation of Israel extremely accountable for the sacrifice of their children. And they were doing the same thing. The abortion is not new. They were doing the same thing. These are the abominations that bring God's judgment. Here's the exciting thing that I want us to see as we just finish out right here. We've got all these things going on. God's judgment falls. Okay, I get it. We are, are guilty. We... Are, are under God's judgment. The judgment is falling. God's doing His thing. It says in verse 15, that, And the God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as He was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You know what the threshing floor of Ornan is? Well, today, there is a big, shiny dome right in the middle. Right in the middle of the threshing floor of Ornan. They call it the Dome of the Rock. It's supposed to be the site of the temple. So there's this angel. I want you to picture this angel standing there by the threshing floor of Ornan. I want you to read the next verse. It says, So, um... Uh, David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. So he's in the air, having in his hand a sword drawn, stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. So they see the angel and they fall down on their faces. They're on sackcloth. All their royal robes are stripped off. They're not saying, I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything wrong. They're, they're showing their humility. They're laying in the dirt. They're, they're before God saying, you know, you have the right to judge, but here we are bowing down, looking for your mercy. David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? Am I not the one who has sinned and done evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. 
So David went up on the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord, and Ornan turned and saw the angel. So Ornan's up there threshing wheat. 70,000 men are dying, and he sees the angel. The Bible says Ornan saw the angel, he just kept threshing. Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan kept threshing the wheat. <laughs> That's the dad. Hey, if, I don't care if an angel is standing over you with a sword drawn, you get this work done. Huh. All the sons scramble. <laughs> but there, dad is, still threshing the wheat. <laughs> Crazy guy. So David came to Ornan. And Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord, and you shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. I want you to hear this. But Ornan said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do what is right in his eyes. I give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering, I give it all. For those of you who were with us at discipleship last night, that should sound familiar. Right? You guys remember what it said in Luke 14? Luke 14, verse 33? I'll read it to you, or you can run over there. So likewise, words in red, Jesus speaking, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's in here. Whoever of you does not forsake all... I love Ornan because of that. Look, Ornan sees David and he sees the angel and he says, look, you want it? It's yours. It's all yours. I give it to you. Ornan's ready to walk away from lock, stock, and barrel. That's his property. His property, his oxen, his wheat, everything that's there, he's like, I give it all. That's utter surrender, right? I love surrender. I like the word surrender more than the word decision. You know, I made a decision for Jesus. I like the word I surrendered to Jesus. It's a better connotation, right? Surrendered. (laughs) I'm yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what Ornan says. And then I love David's attitude when he, when he returns to him. Um, then King David said to Ornan, No, I will surely buy it for a full price, and I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings, that which costs me nothing. So David paid 600 shekels of gold for the place. That's more than top dollar. But David was going to give it all as an offering, and he wasn't giving God something that cost him nothing. He was giving his best. The best he could. So David built there an altar to the Lord and offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven, and fire came from heaven and took the burnt offering. Gone. What an amazing thing. On one hand, the greatest sin of David leads to the greatest blessing. The place where the temple is going to be built. Is God able to use our failures, our stumblings, the ways we fall short? Is God able to use all those things for His glory to bring about incredible uh, uh, fruit? 
for sure if we're willing, right? David took it and, and he lifted up a burnt offering and he put the sacrifice on it and he prayed and fire came from heaven. Shoom! And it was gone. And that became the site of the temple. That's the spot where the angels stopped. Where they built the altar. Where Ornan said, I give it all to you. Where David said, I'm not giving God something that costs me nothing. I'll buy it from you. That's exactly how Jesus works. When He says, any of you will not forsake all for me and not worthy to be my disciple. He also says, any of you who have given up home or house or mother or father or brother or sister will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. He said, once you surrender all, you'll find out it was all worth surrendering in the first place. Amen? And that's what we see taking place in chapter uh, 21. We'll pick it up next time as we take a look, but... We see the battles. Gotta go. Gotta be facing the battles. We gotta do battle with our flesh because our flesh is gonna lead us into those seven things that God hates, right? We gotta confess those things. We gotta recognize that God has a right to judge and the right to say what are the sins that He looks and views as the top of His list. And He wants us to confess and repent and be set free. Be set free. And then enjoy an incredible time of worship as David repents and he gives all that he has. What does he have the opportunity to see? Fire from heaven. Wow. You know, one of the most exciting times in church history is when a group of men and women were together and they're praying, God, bring revival. God, equip us. God, empower us to be what you're asking us to be. And as they sat there in an attitude of repentance in one accord, praying before the Lord God Almighty, heavens opened up and fire came down from heaven. And it huddled over every man's head like a tongue of fire. And the church was born. 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God that day. Because 120 men and women gathered in prayer in one accord and in repentance and it was time. And that same thing has happened. Not another day of Pentecost, but that same thing, fire from heaven, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, equipping God's people to do incredible things has happened all throughout history. God is a God of revival. But God's people have to realize Our lives are in the springtime when the kings go out to war. Don't stay home. It's time to stand. It's time to stand. And if we stand together in an attitude of repentance and prayer and we call upon the name of God, fire will come. It'll purify us. It'll empower us. And it'll change the lives of the lost. Just like it did then. God wants to do it now. It is the springtime. 
Are you ready? It's time to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before You tonight, Lord Jesus. God, we just desire to see Your Spirit move, God. And this is not about somebody else. It's not about what somebody else is doing or what somebody else is thinking. God, this is me. It's me, God. It's me. I'm a, I am a man who walks in six things that You hate. And you're looking for repentance. The lack of power within your bride. You want to move. But your bride is proud. And your bride lies. And your bride is backbiting. And your bride is running as quick as she can to get out of church and run and flee to some evil thing. But God, You see Your bride beautiful, pure. Because that's what she can be if she has the attitude that says, I am a sinner. I have been filled with pride. My attitude has been lousy. God, forgive me. You were right. These things are evil and I need to push them from my life. They should not be named among me. They should not be a part of me. You've asked me one thing, that the Lord God Almighty would be my prime desire in life. You are what I want to run to. God, we want Your fire. And I pray, Jesus, You bring it. You bring it. If we need judge, you judge us. Drive us to repentance. Empower us that we might worship as David did on that hill on the threshing floor of Ornan, on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah. Wow. God, I pray that You would do a work in our hearts, Lord Jesus, for You desire men and women committed to follow You, committed to forsake all, committed to give themselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is simply our reasonable act of worship. God, I pray that You be glorified as our hearts turn toward You. As our attitude is to love You. That we would learn the lessons on the pages of Scripture and cling to You, Lord God Almighty, with all of our strength. It's not by might nor by power, but by Your Spirit. So bring Your Spirit, Lord God, Anoint. We we want you in our lives in power, and we praise you, God, that that that's what you want to. So have your way in us, God, and we give you praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.